Good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know about you guys, but uh, the Lord's Supper is always such a paradox for me. I think that's probably how God intended it. You know, you're sitting there and you're examining yourself and you can't help but to just know how unworthy you are to be doing what you're doing. And then to think about, oh, but worthy is the Lamb, you know, and the joy of that. But, oh, I'm unworthy. The worthy is the Lamb. It's just a, a seesaw almost of emotion. Uh, but, I, you know, I think about what Paul said at the end of Romans 11 about the depth of the riches and the knowledge of God. Uh, that, that's what the cross is. It's a giant paradox. Uh, the depth of it is uh, almost sometimes unsearchable. Uh, certainly a great... Uh, uh, information for uh, any preacher. I don't think should ever run out of lessons to talk about Jesus and the cross. Um, we are unworthy to be here. Uh, we don't belong, um, but Jesus is worthy, and that's why we are here. Uh, and I hope that all every, every time that we gather together to worship Him, whether it uh, be in uh, assemblies as we do here or just in the small times of devotion, that we'll always remember that He is the sole center of everything that we do. First Corinthians 13. Um, before we read that verse, um, there's a play that's called The Black Angel, uh, and it was written by a guy named Michael Christopher. And it's based on the true story about a World War II general by the name of Engel. Engel was sentenced by the Nuremberg Court for 30 years in prison for atrocities that were committed by his army. Uh, he survived this experience. Uh, the play picks up after his release uh, with Engel attempting to try to make a life for himself uh, in a small French village. He basically builds a small cabin in the woods in this French village. And the play picks up right after his release uh, here uh, as he's trying to live out the remainder of his days incognito and in peace. There's another character in the play, though. Uh, there's a French journalist by the name of Moreau in this play, and Moreau tracks Engel upon his release. Uh, Moreau had been strongly impacted by Engel uh, in that his entire family had been massacred by Engel's army in World War II. And so when the Nuremberg court sentenced Engel to 30 years in prison rather than giving him the death sentence, Moreau basically condemned Engel in his own heart and for 30 long years kept this hot hatred alive for him, just waiting for the opportunity to plot his revenge. And now that uh, Engel had been released and he knows where he lives, now the time has come. So Moreau, he tracks Engel to this French village where he lived, and during the day he incited the villagers in the town. And that very evening, those villagers were going to march to Engel's cabin, burn it down, and kill Engel and his wife. But Moreau was a journalist, and because he was a journalist, he wanted to get to Engel uh, before he was killed uh, because he wanted to grill him about the massacre and try to assert you know, motive and, and such. But when Moreau got there, he expected to find this monster living in this cabin, and instead he found a former general who was much older than he remembered, who was visibly shaken, because what had happened after spending all these years in prison, after even the atrocities that he had committed, uh, Engel had rediscovered his humanity. And Engel was full of regret. Uh, he was full of guilt. And so as Moreau was sitting there talking to him, his desire for vengeance uh, began to be blurred. 
and that seething hatred uh, con- that had contaminated him uh, started to subside a little bit. And so he no longer, after seeing what Engel had now become, he no longer desired the general to die. And so as the sun was about to set and the villagers were about to arrive, because Moreau was the one that had incited them to do so, Moreau decided that he wanted to save Engel and therefore told him what was about to happen to he and his wife. Moreau then offers to smuggle Engel and his wife to safety, wishing to save their lives rather than to forfeit it to the angry villagers. It was then that Engel said this to Moreau, I'll agree to go with you on one condition. Now think about how silly that sounds. I'm agreeing to save your life and you're telling me you'll go with me on one condition. Moreau couldn't believe it. So Moreau basically said, uh, what condition, just as perplexed as you can imagine. And Engel responded, I'm just asking that you forgive me for what I did to you and your family. Moreau had not thought about that. Because in his mind, since his own family had been killed by Engel and his army, he had for those last 30 years exterminated Engel in his mind a hundred thousand different ways. His hatred for Engel, his resentment had seethed in him for 30 years. Now he had agreed to save Engel's physical life, but forgive him? Never. And so that night, the enraged villagers came to that cabin with sacks over their head, and they burned it to the ground, and they shot Engel and his wife dead. Let me ask this question. Why was forgiving Engel so much harder than saving his life? The answer to that question is that he had given in to resentment. So given into it, so given into his anger for so long, those past offenses were engraved in stone upon his heart. And it had had basically become a part of who Moreau was. Moreau simply didn't know how to be any other person than that. He He had become synonymously associated with the resentment that he felt towards this man. So when the time actually came for him to forgive Engel, that would actually mean cutting out a part of Moreau's life that had completely consumed his life. Because his resentment had become such a part of him that for him to forgive that man, it would almost be like consigning himself to death and destroy any reason he had left for for living because Moreau had come to live for one thought and one thought only, and that was to hate that man. Talk about the price of resentment. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 tells us this, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That phrase, take into account, uh, comes from the Greek word that's pronounced logizotai. Logizotai. It's actually one word. Some of your translations will say uh, take into account. Some will say keeps no record. Some will say resentful. Some say thinks no evil. It's one Greek word. One. Logizotai. And this Greek word, logizotai, is actually a bookkeeping term. And it means to calculate or to reckon when you're figuring in an entry as you would into a ledger. Now, the reason we might make an entry into a ledger is to make a permanent record so that we might be able to go back to that ledger and consult it, right? 
And in the area of bookkeeping that and accounting, that's absolutely necessary. But Paul is saying that in our personal relationships with one another, not only is that unnecessary, but it is harmful. And it will destroy us spiritually. And to quote this section of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, what that means is that love does not keep account or keep a record of the wrong done to it so that it can refer to it later. Now, what's interesting is if you take that word and if you look at some other verses in the New Testament where that word is used, it tells us a little bit about some of the blessings that we enjoy from God. For example, Romans chapter 4 and verse 8 tells us very simply, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That phrase, take into account, same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 in a negative way. In other words, don't do this. Well, guess what? God, He blessed us and does not take into account our sin. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not keep track of or enter into the records. And who in here should not say amen to that, right? Amen. We have hope. Because through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God has determined not to make an entry into His ledger so that he can consult it when we're standing there before him on Judgment Day. Same word is used in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, when Paul says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, as he has committed to us in the word of reconciliation. Same word, that word, counting. So this is saying that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not tallying up their trespasses that had been committed against him. And I tell you what, if God just, just counted up my trespasses alone, I don't know of a ledger that would be big enough to fit it. But all the world, he didn't do that. Philippians verse four, uh, chapter 4 and verse 8, a uh, very familiar verse. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, there's the same word, dwell on these things. So here we see the word being used in a very positive way. Dwell on these things. Meditate on them. Calculate them. Keep track of those things. Record the entry so you can refer back to later on all these great things, not on all the negative things. Because that's what Paul is saying that love does not do. Love does not dwell and keep track of and record for permanent keeping wrong suffered, wrongs that are suffered against us. And that's exactly what resentment is, is it not? Resentment is the documenting. It's the logging into the book of memory. It is, it, memory. It is the counting and calculating up of all the wrong that has been done against us so that we might consult that log at some point in the future. That is the basis and that is the purpose of resentment. Resentment, uh, if you want to think about it with a capital R, it's the ultimate accountant. Resentment is careful at keeping up the books. With resentment, every single T is crossed, every single I is dotted so that it can be read and reread for a chance to one day share all that with the offender. But Paul says love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep any books. Resentment, when you think about it, very different from ordinary anger. You know, ordinary anger, or sometimes the Bible calls it wrath. That's more like an explosion, is it not? 
But resentment is actually the accumulation of unexpressed anger. It's almost like a, a radioactive explosion underground that not only rocks your foundation, but it poisons and it infects the soul. And because resentment is kept out of view, resentment can be very difficult to detect in its full scope until at last it just spills over into the wellsprings of life, poisoning us and shutting the door to our heart. Anger that isn't dealt with, it builds up and it clogs up so that everything that comes down our pipes, it just gets caught in that web. But if God erases the record against us, if He no longer tallies up those trespasses that we have committed against Him, what then should we do about the much lesser offenses that people, whether out there or in here, commit against us? Love doesn't keep track of all the wrong done against us. Love forgives and dismisses, and love moves on to more important, lovelier things. There is a great price to resentment, brethren. What price does a person pay to harbor resentment in their heart? I heard the story um, about a writer who visited Yellowstone National Park, and he noticed while he was visiting there that there was a grizzly bear who was not consenting to share his kill with any other animal except one. The lovely, adorable skunk. That's it. All the other animals, you chase away, but that skunk, let it be. Just left it there. The skunk was allowed to eat there with the bear. And the writer was thinking, what in the world is going on here? That bear could kill that skunk with one swift swipe with its paw. Why in the world would he allow that skunk to eat his food? The writer concluded, because that bear knew the high cost of getting even. That's why. Harbored resentment, brethren, it comes with a terrible price. First of all, it hurts us physically. We don't think about that sometimes, but it really does. Resentment and bitterness will set us up for emotional breakdowns, and it will also set us up for physical uh, uh, issues, uh, physical problems uh, with with our health. Uh, Some doctors that I've read have honed in on unresolved resentment as the number one emotional problem that leads to physical health problems. And that's something the Bible's been talking about for a long time, right? Proverbs 17, 22, amongst a couple others, says that a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And that's exactly what resentment does us. It breaks our spirit. It makes us somebody that we're truly not. It hurts us. It also deceives us. You ever been in the presence of someone and you thought, oh, this person, they are just so loving, they're so patient, they're so kind. Uh, And then just all of a sudden, without any apparent provocation, they just explode in such a way that is so out of context with their character, you, you can't believe that it's the same person. Where did all that come from? I mean, is that an accident? Is this person some sort of freak of nature regarding basic interpersonal social skills? No, a lot of times there's more to it than that. Likely what you saw was a volcano that finally burst to the surface in pent-up resentment. Offenses of bygone days and books that have been kept up to date. It's like when David was playing the harp for Saul, trying to soothe him, and out of nowhere, Saul just tries to pin him to the wall with that spear. 
Because all that resentment towards David killing his ten thousands while Saul kills a thousand is, is seeping out. It's very deceptive, resentment is. It'll also destroy our family. The consequences of resentment, like all sin, is not contained to the resenter. It bubbles to the surface and it affects our spouse. It affects our children. It brings collateral damage upon the most precious souls in my life as the only outlet that I can seem to find to deal with it typically is to take it out on them. And this happens when infractions in the home are blown out of proportion, uh, where there needs to be mercy and patience expressed, but the wrath instead falls. That destroys self-confidence in children. It makes husbands and wives feel undervalued and underappreciated and unforgiven. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. And then for parents, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. You, you wonder why Paul maybe used those two words, embittered and exasperate. You, you think he knew what resentment could do in the family? All throughout the Bible, we see the sin of one person affecting another, and it's really no different with the sin of resentment. Resentment will infect those that we love in our family. And fourth, and, and to me, I mean, all these are terrible right here. To me, this is one of the biggest ones right here, brethren. Resentment hinders our ability to forgive. We all know someone whose whole life is built around one basic truth, and that is their resentment towards another person. We all know that person. Maybe that person's us. I've been there. Maybe it's someone here whose mother or father abused them and try as you may to forgive them, you can't do it. Maybe it was a spouse who left you. Maybe it was some brother or sister in the church who did or said something to you, and now your entire life has been defined by your resentment towards that brother or sister, and I wish I could tell you I didn't understand that one. But alas, I'm a gospel preacher. <laughs> it happens, and it happens to people besides preachers as well. So day after day after day, you refer to the ledger, you replay the tapes of that resentment in your mind, and it becomes like acid that is eating away at your soul to the point where it almost becomes impossible for you to function as a normal human being. In Psalm 73, uh, in verse 21, David said, When my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Resentment is hatred gone underground, be, underground, being stored up beneath the surface because forgiveness and reconciliation has not taken place because resentment will not allow it to take place. And when that happens, as David says here, it robs us of our senses. And it prevents us from exercising some of the most basic Christian graces towards another. Because here's what happens. If you go to the person who has wronged you, if you go to that person and you let them have it, and you go over every single infraction they have committed against you, how will you respond if they do the incredible? How will you respond if they humbly repent? Tearfully, regretfully, and now they want to make amends. Because now, <laughs> I'm backed in a corner. <laughs> I, I've been building up all this resentment for all these years. I, I wanted to let them have it, but I didn't know they were going to actually ask me for forgiveness. Ugh. 
Now who am I going to be? <laughs> I've been this guy all these years. Now who am I going to be? I don't have anybody left to be. You see what happens here? If you're a person whose heart has been buried in the black depths of bitterness to the point that you've allowed it to consume you, that's what happens. It keeps us from doing one of the most basic graces that God would have us to afford to another individual. Because to give it up, that's a heavy burden to lay at the cross. Um, if you like World War II history, you'll uh, like some of my sermons because I like to get into World War II history. It's just amazing how much World War II stuff can be used in gospel sermons. But uh, uh, here's another one. Uh, anybody ever heard of Corey Ten Boom before? Uh, okay, that name probably sounds familiar to a lot of us. Um, she's very famous for helping Jews escape the Holocaust during World War II until she herself was caught um, doing that, and she was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp. Um, and a few days after the Allies conquered Germany, she was released, um, but she, she had this resentment issue. Uh, it took her a lot longer to release herself from the bitterness that she had stored up in her heart because of the things that those Germans did to her and her fellow cellmates while she was behind bars. But Corrie ten Boom decided uh, just by an act of will that she was going to set out on a European journey of extending to for, uh, forgiveness to whoever she met. And so she decided to do this. She decided to go about Europe and teach and preach forgiveness. Um, I don't know in what capacity she, she did this. Um, but she went all over Holland and France and Germany extending forgiveness to all the uh, people who um, would have been impacted uh, by uh, the Allied uh, armies taking over. And one day while she was in Munich, she proclaimed forgiveness to all those Germans that were so eager to be forgiven. And when she was finished, she says that something happened that she had not prepared for. There was a man who had heard her speech, and he approached her outside and extended his hand towards her, wanting her to take it. And this man said to her, Fraulein Ten Boom, I am so glad Jesus forgives us all our sins, just as you say. Corey Ten Boom recognized this man. She knew him. She remembered him from the concentration camp because she was forced to take a shower with all the other women prisoners while this beast watched and leered and mocked, guarding helpless naked women. She remembered him all right. And now this man is stretching out his hand, asking her forgiveness. And her hand, she's writing all this, freezes at her side. She couldn't lift it because she couldn't forgive him. Now she had been proclaiming forgiveness all throughout Europe, but now she was confronted with it personally. And she couldn't bring herself to do it. I'm just going to read you what she wrote. I'm not saying that all this is... There are some implications of this I would not agree with, and we can talk about that later if you want, but I'm just going to tell you what she wrote. She wrote that she, uh, she said, I was stunned and terrified by my own weakness. Uh, I was so sure that I had overcome the deep hurt. Uh, so, so what was I to do now, confronted by the ma a man I could not forgive? And so she says she prayed, Lord, I br cannot bring myself to forgive this man. Please forgive me for not forgiving him. But then she wrote all at once in some unexplained way that she couldn't later describe. She felt forgiven, forgiven for not forgiving. And at that moment, her hand was able to go up and embrace the hand of her enemy and released him of his debt against her. 
And in so doing, she writes, she likewise freed herself. And again, some implications of this that might be a little bit concerning, <laughs> but I, that takes faith, folks, to forgive somebody that does something so monstrous to you. It takes faith. You really do have to go from the ordinary to the extraordinary to be willing to let something like this that so affected you and is so ingrained within you to just let it go. Because this only happens with people that others write stories about, people that become sermon illustrations for other preachers. I'm telling you, that takes guts. Why do we do it? If we, if we know how much damage bitterness and resentment brings to us, why do we hold on to it so much? You, you would think with, with something that like resentment that just destroys us spiritually, it hinders our capacity to forgive. When we know that Jesus said that if we don't forgive others, He's not going to forgive us, you, you would think that that would be something that we would want to stay away from as far as possible. But why do we do it? with all the damage that it can bring. Well, there are reasons um, that make sense to us. Uh, some of these are probably common sense. Others are things that have come out of studies that have been done, done on this. We're not going to look at all, but I'm going to look at some of the top reasons with you. First of all, um, resentment causes us to feel superior to the one we resent, does it not? I mean, a lot of people enjoy the noble feeling of being the decent person who was wrongfully treated. That's what we call the martyr mentality. And the more that we think with the martyr mentality, the more it elevates us above the one that we resent. It really does produce a feeling of superiority. And that's why so many people do it. Ask me how I know that after service. Ask me how I know that. <laughs> you know the answer. We all do. It makes you feel better than the other person. Second, harboring resentment allows us to indulge in our minds exquisite plots of revenge. And you know exactly what I'm talking about here, folks. You, you know what I'm talking about. You are in some kind of conflict, right? And you walk away from said conflict, and you get in your car, and you drive home, and then on, on your way home, it hits you. Oh, man, I should have said this to this person. Oh, I can't believe I didn't remember that. And so now you're driving home, and you're rehearsing it. You're going through what you should have said to that turkey back there, and he doesn't even know what you're doing. He's back there doing whatever he's doing, and you're driving in your car, and you're like... And then the guy in the car next to you is looking at you like, wonder what song he's listening to. I mean, you look like, you look like you're crazy, don't you? Because you're going through this, and, and you're enacting it over and over and over in your mind, rehearsing it, rehearsing, rehearsing your resentment towards that man. And, you know... We all know what this is like, but you do it once or twice and you get it out of your system, fine. But the problem is when you keep rehearsing it over and over and over again, weeks later, months later, years later, planning intricate, exotic plots to get even, brethren, that's where the trouble begins. There really is a kind of a sadistic pleasure that we get out of this, right? It's one thing to do it and get it out of your system, but to play it over and over again like a worn-out tape, that's where we get in trouble. And then third, this one's odd. Sometimes we harbor past wounds so we can hurt ourselves. Resentment is a sort of neurotic desire on the part of the resenter to inflict pain upon himself. It's almost like a strange way to learn how to enjoy your resentment. 
And so we lay in bed and we replay the circumstances over and over again because we get some kind of sordid pleasure out of hurting ourselves. I mean, when something unjust happens to us, and it's going to because we live in a world of sin and we've contributed to that sin, and then the ripple effects of other people's sins are going to ripple down to our lives, so it's going to happen. But when it does, what is generally our first reaction? We tell everyone close to us what happened, don't we? Then we go to work, and then we tell it to our coworkers. We catch them by the coffee pot, and we say, you're never going to believe what that turkey did to me over the weekend, and then we rehearse it. What are we doing? Every time that we tell someone what someone else unjust did to us, we're driving our resentment deeper and deeper into our souls. And we're making a logbook of infractions more difficult to erase until that resentment is so deep that only the miracle of God's grace can help us to deal with it. There really is a pattern of self-destruction that we can place ourselves in by continuing to rehash old wounds to others. And I will suggest, as I'm going to make that point here in just a moment, that we need to tell it to God and not other people. Tell it to the Lord one time, and that's it. Because harboring resentment gives us a neurotic pleasure and religious pride all wrapped up in this nice little sin package. What do we do about it, folks? We all know what I'm talking about here. Every single one of us has had to go through this. It's, it's tough. So how do you fix it? I want to give you four suggestions, and these are going to look so simple when they're on a projected screen on a wall. And you're going to be like, well, that, <laughs> that's profound, right? You know, there, I promise you, there's nothing profound about this. In fact, it's so simple, it's, it's ridiculous how sinful it is. Case in point number one, write it down. <laughs> it helps. If you have a problem with resentment, trust me, if you know you're resentful, I want you to go home today and I want you to get out a blank sheet of paper and I want you to write at the top of that, this is why I am resentful. And then I want you to list the reasons. And when you're done writing it down, look at it full in the face and read it over. Now, don't try to make a better case than you should. You know what I'm talking about there. Don't, don't try to make a better case. Don't try to make the person that you're angry with more evil than he already is. Just put the facts down as they are. Read it over. And what you'll first find out is you'll feel a little bit better having done that, but you know what else is going to happen after you've written it down? You're going to notice sometimes a discrepancy. You'll notice a difference between what your honesty lets you write down on that paper and what your mind has been letting you believe all these years as you played it over and over and over again each day. And then you take a couple days and get that sheet of paper out again and read it, and you just see if it's actually the truth. Because isn't it amazing how sometimes we can rewrite history just to make ourselves feel better? Second, work it out. There are much better ways to work through resentment than to constantly ventilate it to other people. Folks, that is the worst way to deal, it, deal with it. You can exercise. That's one way. Sometimes when, I, when I'm struggling over some uh, church conflict, uh, which doesn't happen all that much, we're, we got a pretty good thing going on in Auburn. But uh, every now and then when I'm going through something like that, it's easier for me to go take it out on a couple tennis balls on a tennis court than it is to go start talking to other brethren about it. Uh, so th that helps. But, but let me tell you, the, the, what really helps is, is um, well, I'm not there yet, is, is what 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7 tells us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety on Him 
because he cares for you. That's the real way we need to work it out. So we need to take it to God, not all these other folks. Take it to God. Let him deal with it. And then talk it over with a, with a true friend, okay? Now let me emphasize when I say talk it with a true friend, the true part. I mean a true friend. And a true friend is not that guy that you can go to because you know he's going to confirm how you feel. We've all got those people that are going to be agreeable with you, okay? That's not always the true friend. The true friend is the guy who will say, Ryan, don't you think you might be overreacting just a little bit? I understand how you're feeling, Ryan, but you're being very emotional right now. You need to take a deep breath. You need to think this thing through because what you just told me, it doesn't sound as bad as you're making it right now. That's the kind of friend we need to take it to. And that's how we're supposed to be with our mate too, isn't it? I mean, because the idea is not to let our anger get to the point where it becomes settled and then turns to resentment. As Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then fourth and finally, and most important, brethren, we've got to give this up. We've got to let it go. You know, there's something about the game of basketball that can bring out the worst in people, isn't it? You ever played basketball with Christians? Oh, Christians are some of the most elbow-flying people I've ever played basketball with. I thought they were bad you know, on the uh, playground courts when you're dealing with un unbelievers, and then you get with some Christians. They're some of the most humble and meek people, and they're flying elbows in your face. I mean, uh, it, it gets kind of nasty sometimes playing uh, basketball with uh, Christians. But somehow we all manage to get back together and uh, play a game or two after those elbows are flying and not really think about what happened to the game a few days before, right? I've been around construction crews um, a lot, and I've seen contractors just go at it with all matter of filth just spilling out of their mouths. And, and you would hear, you, you hear them talking, and you would think, there's no way these guys are going to be able to work together on this project tomorrow. Not after the way they were just talking about uh, to each other. And then they're right back there just hammering away the next day like it didn't even happen. Why is it that people in the world seem to do a much better job of letting things go sometimes than Christians? Why can't we be better forgetters? Uh, there's probably several reasons. Um, maybe, just maybe, the devil works harder on us than he does people in the world uh, because he knows the kind of damage that can be done uh, towards uh, the cause of Christ when we are not united in love at this church. But um, Clara Barton who was the founder of the Red Cross. Uh, she had a friend who once reminded her of a very cruel thing that someone had done to her years prior. And Clara Barton, she couldn't remember what it was, and so a friend of her said, oh, are you kidding me? Don't you remember what this person did to you? It was horrible. And Clara Barton said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. That's the key right there. Give it up. Forget it. Turn it loose. Ephesians 4, verse 31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The evil that others do us are often written in bold ink, but love has a way of erasing it all. The same blood of Jesus Christ that forgives us and cleanses us from our sins, it is powerful enough to cleanse the sins and the wrongs that are done to us by others, brethren. And so in continuing that thought in Ephesians 4.31 by looking at verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Are you here this morning? Are you, are you bound by the chains of resentment? I mean, is it literally eating away at you inside? Uh, has it robbed you of your joy? Does it keep you from smiling? Has it poisoned your home? Has it poisoned the people that are around you? Are they suffering because of what you have harbored underground? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The invitation this morning is to take it to the cross. Give it to God and let God take care of it. As God has done in Christ, has done to all the debt that we have owed Him. Come forward if we can help you in any way while we stand, while we sing.